Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? The usual shout-out to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting editing this episode, and I greatly appreciate his support on each of these shows. You can learn more about his work at IdealVideoStrategies.com. And if you're not listening to Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb and ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, I highly recommend that you check them out. In Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb explores ways that you can work with your ADHD brain to do more of the things that you want to do. And Eric Tivers on ADHD Rewired has designed a show for adults with really good intentions but slightly wandering attention. He interviews leading experts in the field and, of course, individuals who have ADHD and have learned some hard-earned strategies and tips. Finally, the next round of the ADHD Essentials online parent coaching groups will launch Monday, March 16th, 2020, and run on Mondays and Wednesdays for eight weeks. If you're interested in joining, go to www.adhdessentials.com slash parentgroups or email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. I'll begin contacting people on January 6th, 2020, which is just around the corner, in order to schedule some free information and registration sessions about the groups. Registration closes Monday, February 3rd, and the sooner you get in, the more likely I am to have a space for you. Welcome to ADHD Essentials. Today, we're talking to Carrie Hertzberger. Carrie is a coach who helps kids and teens with ADHD and anxiety get unstuck and develop the skills, mindsets, and confidence they need to meet with success. Her goal is to help kids achieve not just in school, but also to stand out in their own way outside of school. In today's episode, Carrie and I talk about helping our kids embrace a little wins to build their confidence, how to try different rather than harder, and the importance of mindset shifts in the pursuit of success. All right, let's get rolling. I work with teens with ADHD and anxiety, and I help them feel not stuck in a, the, the chaotic, overwhelmed, anxious state that they're in. And I help them kind of do things differently to transform to calm and confident so they can be successful, not only in school, but more important, unstoppable in life. So all of my parents are like, how, how do you do that? Cause my kid is in that stuck mode and full of anxiety. And what do I do with it? If you're comfortable starting there, let's start there. How? That sounds good. So I'll tell you right up front. I'm always figuring out that how piece. Every time I think I have a piece of the puzzle figured out, I meet a student who kind of defies the whole mold and we're starting over. But basically what I do is start by helping students set small wins. Wins build confidence, confidence builds success. And then once we get that confidence going, then we start creating a a vision. A lot of times when we talk to mindset people, we start at the vision. But when we're talking to a teen whose brain is not fully developed, 
and we're talking to someone with ADHD or anxiety, it can be really hard to get to that vision. So I like to start with little baby pieces and then build up. And once we get some concrete things going, then we can come to the vision. Then we can break it down and start taking action towards a vision. Yeah, that's awesome. How long does that typically take? It depends on the student. Sometimes it has happened very quickly. I've had a few fortunate one-on-one sessions with students who meet with me once or twice and they're just done and rolling and ready to go. So their confidence is sort of already there, I would assume. It's there, but they just didn't realize that thinking about it a different way or, or doing something different than the way they'd been told could work for them. And then, you know, essentially in their minds, all their problems were solved. And then other students, it takes weeks, months, some students, it takes years. But really, I think that you can make a big difference in about three months. When I'm working with students one-on-one, I like committing for at least a, a school quarter, even if it's not academic, but that school quarter, because it takes time to build a relationship And if it's in a group setting, it takes time for the the students to kind of get comfortable with each other. So then you can move forward. And if we're looking at building confidence, that's not an overnight process. That takes a while to do. One of the things that drives me the most crazy is when people are like, well, just be more confident. Fake it till you make it. Like that's when it's confidence, that's hard to do. It is. And, you know, we often hear about like mantras and affirmations and I have one myself. I am a fiercely unstoppable care bear. <laughs> That's mine. But getting there is is really hard. So actually, I, I try and reframe that and make a, an actionable affirmation. What is one thing, not everything, what is one thing I have to do to become that fiercely unstoppable care bear or whatever that, that manufactured mantra is? And then you're committing to do that no matter what. Yeah, because... Those affirmations, we know they don't work with people who aren't confident. They just undermine the confidence. If they're like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, (laughs) it just ruins them because they don't believe what they're saying. Right. But if you flip it around and you say, I'm good at math because I passed the last 12 tests that I took kind of a thing, if you're backing it up with evidence and being more specific, then it's easier to buy in and that can grow. And I like the take you have on it where it's, I want to be good enough, so I'm going to do this thing. Because that backs up the doing of the thing with an emotion, and that's awesome. For some students, you know, they want to be good at math, but they might need to start with taking out the pencil. That might be that first action, and maybe that's the first action for three weeks. For some students, just getting the pencil out on the desk is huge. And I think sometimes in school and at home, we often ask for too much with these goals. While they're very well intentioned, we need to realize that we just, we really have to break them down to the smallest action that that student is ready to take. And if it's getting out the pencil, then get out the pencil. If it's writing a name on a paper, then write the name on a paper. If it's finding, in the case of math, one problem to get started on, then that can be the actionable part of the affirmation. Awesome. Is that very small step the goal that you're setting? Like I'm going to take my pencil out when I get home from school with the intention being that you're going to get to homework? Or is the goal something along the lines of I'm going to take my pencil out so I'm ready to do my homework after school every day? 
For me, it depends on where that student is on that confidence mindset spectrum. So if they're just starting out, that action and that goal are taking out the pencil. If they've had some time to work with those small wins and and maybe they have three to five small wins they're accomplishing on a regular basis, then it looks like they've added in that affirmation. And the first step of it is taking out the pencil and writing the name. And it's attached to that affirmation of getting the math homework done or getting a B in math or whatever it is. So it, it depends still where they are on that spectrum. How does anxiety play into this? Oh, man. So somewhere along the way, most of the data I see, 30% of kiddos with ADHD also have a diagnosis of anxiety. Plus, there's also just that underlying anxiety that's there as part of ADHD anyway. In my experience, it's a whole lot higher than that. I like to say that there's nobody with ADHD who's not also affected by anxiety. Whether it's diagnosable or not is different, but everybody's got something going on. Absolutely. And I think that from a school setting and also from a home setting, anxiety is one of those biggest misunderstood concepts. Just the whole idea of, well, try harder. Just do it. Like you were saying before, just be confident. But when you're really struggling to get something done, like you talk about with your wall of awful model, taking that first step is so hard and it can easily be perceived as procrastination, as laziness, any of these other negative definitions from the outside when you're just really not seeing what's going on in that kid's head. What I try and do when I work with students is we talk about how fear and worry are normal and even good for you. The whole idea that, that we have fear and worry because it protects us from things that we shouldn't be doing. It protects us from putting ourselves in harm way. But sometimes we cross the line to anxiety. That's when the fear and worry can hold us back. And we have to decide if it's a time that we want to listen to our fear and worry or if we want to take a step to work through it. Recently, my, my students and I were doing this in a group over the summer, and they challenged me to go on a roller coaster by myself in the front row. (laughs) So clearly we were talking about our fears and I'm afraid of roller coasters. And this was their challenge to me. And I said, okay, you know, I, this is something I can work through. I know nothing bad is going to happen. So I'm going to do it. And I did it. So do you work with your students like in person? I guess, how did you end up at an amusement park with your students? What does that look like? (laughs) So I work all online now. I have one-on-one academic coaching students, and then I do a mastermind for teens, which is a group, and that's more of the confidence coaching piece, and it's all online. So we meet on Zoom, and we can see each other. If it's a group setting, they can see each other. We can share screens. We can collaborate on documents, and really, it's what the kids are comfortable with. Our world is really changing from that one-on-one going out and seeing people to spending a lot of time behind screens. And as much as I live in that world of being out in the world with people, my students, especially the ones with anxiety, I'm finding are so much more comfortable in the, the screen. All they have to do is click on a link. I email them. They don't have to drive somewhere. Their parents don't have to drive somewhere. They don't have to be in a public place or worry about someone seeing them with me. It's at home where they're comfortable. And I often find they're 
their attention span is longer. We can, you know, get up and take breaks that in a way that we might not be able to in a public setting. It's just really been working for us. The amusement park thing, the, the kids were not with me. Oh, okay. I did it. I was, was with my family. Okay. But I did it and they got pictures. And how was that? I couldn't talk for two weeks after. Really? <laughs> I had, oh, I had roller coaster voice. Yeah. But it, it was amazing because I was screaming the whole time with, I did it. This is awesome. <laughs> well, and is that something that like makes you scared? Is that a fear of yours going on roller coasters or being the first one or something? Yeah, it's definitely a fear. I still have the logic side of my brain that, that knows that I'm okay. It's not something I'm completely shut down to. I have gone on roller coasters in the past, but this was a challenge that my students gave me and they, they made it harder by saying, go in the front row, go by yourself. And that is what made it really hard for me. Like not being able to cling on to my husband for dear life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So one of the ideas that you talk about and you sort of alluded to it already is trying differently, not harder. Yes. Can you walk us through what you mean by that? Sure. Often, at least all too often, I hear teachers, parents, outsiders saying, well, just, just try harder. You know, a child's trying to do his homework and try harder. You're not trying hard enough. And really, I think we need to recognize that often these kids are trying as hard as they can. It may not look like it to us. It may look like procrastination and laziness but they really are trying. It just, it looks different to us. And I talk with my students about, well, if the way you aren't doing it isn't working, how can you find another way to get to the end result that you want? If it's a writing assignment, what if you switch from pencil to pen or from pen to marker or to the keyboard? I have a lot of students, I get them to record what they want to say, not, not speech to text, because that's just a whole world of frustration for a lot of people, but actually just recording what they're saying so they can talk through it first. I send students to audiobooks all the time, and often their first response to me is, well, my teacher says that's cheating. And I have conversations with the parents ahead of time to make sure it's okay with them, and we talk about why it's not cheating and how we're just using reading in a different way to get the result we need to get. You know, we, we problem solve. And the students are so much more adaptable, I think, than we give them credit for. If we give them some time to solve a problem for themselves and some space to do it, they're going to come up with a solution. I agree. Yeah, I find, I find the same thing. Have you seen the studies indicating that listening to a book affects the brain in the same way that reading a book does? I haven't. I've seen a lot of the other way around that you should read with your eyes because you can be a more active and engaged reader. And for me, honestly, that is the case. But we live in a world where we're consuming so much audio information, especially as adults. What have you found? I find that sort of aside from the studies, because I didn't find any of that stuff, someone else did. But with my kids and even with myself, one of the advantages of audiobooks is that I can listen to an audiobook and do something else at the same time that helps me maintain my focus. Often for me, it's driving. Like I tend to do the most of my audio intake stuff while driving. So podcasts, audiobooks, that kind of stuff. I struggle to listen to an audiobook just in the kitchen or in my bedroom. Like I'm just going to sit here and listen to this. It doesn't work. 
I have to be doing something else. So I will often pair a particularly boring and frustrating or mundane task that doesn't require a lot of thought, like cleaning a room or sweeping the floor or something like that with an audiobook or a podcast. And it helps me do both, really. It helps me start the dishes and it also helps me get a little bit further into that book. So for me, because there is no stopping once it starts, the fact that the audiobook creates the forward momentum for me is a powerful tool for beginning. Whereas with a book, if I'm reading it, I can stop at any second and put that thing down and there's nothing to force me to keep going unless the book is really interesting and engaging, which just isn't always the case. That's the benefit of audiobooks in my mind. But yeah, it can be hard theoretically to take notes and engage, but it doesn't have to be. You can rewind, you can pause, you can write stuff down, you can do all those things. We just don't necessarily think of it. You have to come prepared for that engagement. You got to bring a notebook, have a pencil, be sitting there ready to go, even if you're doing something else, at least in my experience. Yeah. And and depending where you're listening, some of those things are built in. You can put bookmarks and comments straight into the audio form. I also will tell students to have a copy of the book handy. And I love using the post-it note note-taking strategy. Because a lot of times when you're, you're in school, you have to refer back to the book. So if you're taking notes and you hear something, you jot it on a post-it note and you can stick it in the book where it belongs, even if you weren't reading that page with your eyes. Yeah. And I should add, I never take notes if I'm listening to an audiobook or podcast while driving, because that would be dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. I love it that you brought up the fact that you can have a paper copy of the book and an audio copy of the book and listen to the book while reading the paper copy. Cause I don't think enough people do that. And a lot of e-readers now you can get the audio and the e-reading version. And I think in Kindle and some of them you can switch in and out. Yeah. Kindle and audio audible. So you can be reading it and it'll keep track of where you are. So sometimes you can read with your eyes. Sometimes you can hit play and and go back and forth between both. These are things I wish we were teaching in school. And I don't know, maybe there are schools that do, but the ones that, that I am familiar with aren't doing this. And then the kids get to college or post-college and they're suddenly encountered with all of these wonderful technologies that they didn't know they could use that are revolutionizing their lives. I had Danielle Stasa on, I don't know, maybe a year ago. She's an English teacher and she's flipped her classroom. So she does the reading and the learning about how to write the essay and all that stuff at home. And then in class, they do what might otherwise be homework. So the application is happening in class. And when she asks kids to read a book, she judges how long it should take them to read the chapter by basing it on how long that lasts in the audiobook. And she absolutely provides audiobooks for whatever students want them. So there are teachers out there doing it. I don't know if she's unique in that, but uh, in Massachusetts where I am, that's a thing that's happening. I do work with teachers who often say, go to YouTube because there's often, you know, the, the teachers who are reading the book aloud. But I love the idea of actually teaching the skills of here is how you can use the audiobook. Here's how you can still take notes with it. All of those things. But yes, I'm sure there are teachers in schools out there doing it. I just don't know of any directly. And also, teachers aren't always obvious enough about it. 
like that's there too, especially when you're talking about kids with anxiety and ADHD, they may very well have that option available to them, but the teacher said it once in the beginning of the year and they forgot about it or don't realize it's a choice anymore or are too anxious to ask. Right. Especially if it's new and it's something that in the past wasn't allowed or was considered cheating or whatever it was. And then that student may not feel comfortable accessing it this time around. And that's another place where parents can help. Because if you're a parent who is saying, oh, listening to the book is cheating. Guess what? Your kid's not going to ask for that accommodation. And it's not cheating. But there certainly are folks out there who are like, when I was a kid, I had to suffer. So you should have to suffer too. (laughs) Probably not too many of them are listening to this podcast because that's anathema to my entire approach, but they exist. So that might be affecting kids' willingness to try out another strategy as well. The other thing I use with my students a lot is SparkNotes, CliffNotes, eNotes, all of those sites. And again, it's the, I'm not allowed to look at those. And I teach them, well, here's how you can look at them to help you understand what you're reading. I say, look at the context. There's always a, an overview in the beginning that gives a, you know, a general summary of the book. Look at that. That way, when you're reading the book, you know what to look for, especially if the language is challenging, depending on what you're reading or the, you know, the overall themes are often, I find, too mature for students that they don't really understand what's going on. And then students who need more support I'll say, look at the chapter summary. If you're reading chapter one for homework, read the chapter one summary, find three to five things that are going to happen in chapter one, then read the real chapter one and find those things in the book. Put a post-it note there, highlight them, check them off. It's creating this guide, this anticipation guide for reading, as opposed to just jumping into a book blind. Yeah, that's one of the areas where I think schools have shot themselves in the foot, at least when it comes to kids who struggle. The message of like, don't use the cliff notes for the test. I read through the cliff notes and there's no questions in the cliff notes that are on the test and you're going to fail if you use the cliff notes and all this stuff. It ruins a really useful tool to not trust your kids. And it makes it sound like using the cliff notes is bad when actually it's a really good strategy. The bad strategy is using only the cliff notes. But using the cliff notes and the novel, or especially Shakespeare's plays, that is a solid strategy. Absolutely. And then I I have students who really struggle with language. So I'll even make an abridged guide, reduce it down to three to five things per chapter, instead of them having to look through the big summaries. How about things that are not novels? Where are you going with science or math or social studies and those kinds of things? Is it YouTube as a strategy? Is it something else? I often find videos. I usually help the students find the videos that are helpful to them because they're, you know, you go on YouTube or whatever it is. A lot of times their school LMS will have resources like discovery learning and, oh, what's the one with the robot? All cartoony. Brain pop, I think. Brain pop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll usually either find videos ahead of time if they need them, or I'll help them find videos. And a lot of times, if I'm directly supporting the academic piece, I'll preview the textbook ahead. I like getting copies of the textbooks, or uh, students will give me access to their online textbooks. 
and I'll kind of figure out the way that a student needs to find that information or to access that information. And then I'll, I'll kind of guide them in that way. But I would say that most of the time when I'm helping students, it's with the, the reading and the writing. That's the part that's so ambiguous in their minds and lacks structure often in the teaching that the ADHD brain and the anxious brain needs help breaking it down and putting a structure in it so that they can then move forward with what they need to. So pivoting a little bit, you also do work around middle school transition. I do. And since my kids just did that and are sort of still doing that, what do you have there? What are, what are some pieces of advice that exist for middle school transition? And also, can those general rules expand to high school transition, college transition, that kind of stuff? Yeah, they absolutely do expand. The reason why I often focus on middle school transition is because that's when I see the biggest red flags appear for a student. Most of the time, kids are going through elementary school relatively fine. They get a lot of hand-holding from their teachers, from their families. You know, elementary school is a a lovey-dovey kind of place. Not always, but, you know, most of the time, that's the way it is. We, We help them every step of the way. Then we send our kids to middle school. In my area, that's sixth grade, but it, you know, it varies depending where you are. We send them to middle school and often families say, okay, you're in middle school now, be independent. And teachers say, okay, you're in middle school now, be independent. Here's some papers, put them in your binder. And what I find is that we're sending kids ill-prepared for this time of independence. They're suddenly dealing with binders when they probably weren't dealing with a binder before, or if they were, it was really, really directed. We as teachers and as parents, we think the kids know what a binder should look like and where the papers should go. We think it makes sense to write down your homework, but for the kids, they just, they don't have those skills yet because they haven't been taught. And then we're telling them to do it by themselves without helping. So this is why it's usually just a chaotic time for that sixth grade or that initial middle school transition. They're just kind of floundering. One of the things that I think is really helpful is setting up a really specific after-school routine. Doesn't mean that has to be as soon as the kid walks in through the door. You know, they often need downtime, they need a break. We also have to recognize we live in the world of extracurricular activities. Kids might not be walking in the door until seven or eight o'clock at night. But if, if a student has an LMS, a learning management system online, I always say to the parents, start there. Go with the student to the LMS, check every class, see what there is for homework, write it down in the planner. Oftentimes, kids don't write in their planners. And the reason why is because when that bell rings and classes are changing, It is so chaotic in school. The kids are worried about getting to the next class on time. The teacher's calling out what the homework is. They're trying to organize their stuff. There's so much going on in that moment that planners, though well-intentioned, often just don't happen. So we go to the LMS. We write down whatever the assignments are that we have to do. We also check to see if they're missing assignments. And LMS stands for what? Learning Management System. Usually it's some kind of website that lists your child's classes and their grades and their assignments coming up. Your school probably has one. 
if you're not sure, ask, because I, I run into that a lot where the kids aren't even aware that it exists, where the parents aren't even aware it exists, and they find out and suddenly all their problems are solved because they suddenly realize they have access to everything they ever needed and didn't know was there. What do we do next, right? Like we've written down the homework, now what? So you need to make a plan. I always have my students consider their schedules when they're making a plan. So we actually get out a calendar and a lot of times at this point, my students have cell phones. So I make sure their stuff is in their cell phone calendar. So they're not having to ask mom or dad, hey, when's soccer practice? Or, you know, am I even going to be home at five o'clock on a Tuesday? And then they can really consider what needs to be done and when. In the beginning, it takes a lot of guidance from the adult. You know, it's very easy for a student to say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to do all my homework tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow they're not going to be home until eight o'clock. And, you know, the next night maybe is completely free. So you kind of have to help them slot it in. And I actually have them write down in their planner or on their calendar when they're going to do each thing that they have to do. Are you having them estimate how long it's going to take to do those things? Is that in there somewhere? I love that idea. And I know that's something you often suggest, but I find, especially when I'm first starting with someone, they really have no concept. Oh yeah. No, they're going to be terrible at it. Yeah. Sometimes I will actually say, Hey, I think you can do this in 20 minutes, or I think this is a long activity. I'll, I'll in fact have students look at it and think what's going to be long and what's going to be short. And then that's something that can progress from there. Yeah. That's the same kind of idea. That's awesome. So what are some other areas of challenge in that middle school transition that you find exist? Students, I think, often struggle with navigating relationships with teachers. In elementary school, they're used to one or two main teachers. And then suddenly they go off to middle school. They have all these different teachers and often different expectations, uh, different personalities that they have to deal with. And they're not sure how to communicate, especially because school is often chaotic and crazy and busy and they don't know when they can go talk to their teacher or they plan to talk to their teacher and they forget. It's completely different. I often suggest to students that they, I'll help them message their teacher, email or message through their LMS, whatever it is, so that they can get out whatever it is that they think they're gonna say to their teacher tomorrow. And that also helps their teacher to come to them instead of having to solicit the teacher. So what brought you to this work? I taught in the school system for about 10 years. I taught in public school, private school, non-public school, um, developmental reading and writing classes at the community college level. So I've kind of dabbled in a, a lot of different things. I spent most of the time in second through sixth grade reading and writing. And then I had kids. And I said, there's no way I can be a good teacher and give it my all and be a good mom and give it my all. Something's going to suffer there. I'm not going to be able to give 100% to both things all the time. So I started tutoring. And that looks like your, your traditional, I meet with a student in their house or in a library and worked with them one-on-one. I have a lot of training with Uh, dyslexia education. So I worked with a lot of dyslexic students. And then I just started kind of picking up students with ADHD and anxiety. I discovered I was really good at it. And I discovered that 
what they needed wasn't really the academic piece. It was that mindset shift so they could build the confidence. And once they made that shift, they were independent. So that's kind of how I got to where I am. The online tutoring was more convenient than anything else. I was running all over the place and I could only help a handful of kids because, you know, I was driving 30 to 45 minutes between each student. Once I went online, I could help more kids. And then once I realized that mindset shift made a difference, that's when I got into the group coaching. And the kids just being there and relating to each other is a game changer for them. It all happened by accident. What do the coaching groups look like? What are those teen mindset coaching groups? How does that work? So I'm still in the trial phase, but it looks like about 12 weeks. In the first three to four weeks, we meet twice a week. After that, we meet once a week. I have a curriculum that I've developed all around building small wins. And after students are building those wins and and tracking them and being successful with them, then we move on to creating affirmations and bigger visions. And then we break the the vision down into actions. But also, it's, it's not so scripted that we can't go to where the kids need to go. Sometimes we just, you know, we talk about something we're struggling with. They help each other figure out ways to try differently. We do a lot with gratitude practice and mindfulness practices that are really accessible to students. Sometimes they hear the word mindfulness and they're like, oh no, that's not for me. I can't do that. Right. It sounds like this scary, crazy thing, but we approach it in a way that's, that's really accessible. And then students just latch onto ideas that work for them and start using them. Awesome. So just being mindful of time, Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? Everything I say really goes back to getting students to try differently, not harder. And the idea of learn something different, learn somewhere different, and learn differently. Whatever it is that we're doing at school doesn't define who we are. It does shape who we are but we need to keep learning everywhere we can all the time in all different ways. It doesn't have to look this school way. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.